Good morning. Everybody awake? All right, well, you will be because um, I know you thought those were blueberry pancakes, but they were actually prune pancakes. So uh, you'll be wide awake in about 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you know, just leave. Don't raise your hand. Just, just get out of here. Well, we're going to move into chapter 4. We're working our way uh, towards the end. Believe it or not, we've got three weeks left, including this week, uh, to the end of this series. And so we're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to take uh, the first six verses. And so let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into it this morning. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the fellowship. Lord, uh, for this facility that we get to meet in. And we're grateful that you allow us to come together as men to study your word. And I pray that you would speak to us through your word today and through this particular section of 1 Peter. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor, and we thank you for what you're going to teach us this, this morning through the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So if you've got your Bibles, open up, up to chapter 4, and this week is Don't Lose Hope, and um, pretty pertinent, right, to uh, where we are in our world right now. It's really easy to lose hope when you look at what's going on around us, and um, you guys, we need to be in constant prayer for Ukraine, that, that whole situation, and um, the church is trying to decide exactly how we're going to get engaged in that and how we're going to give and help because the needs are great, but we live in difficult days, and so it's, it's really easy to start to lose hope when you look at what's going on in our culture, in our world, in our society, in our country, and yet we're to be people of hope. We've, we've seen that over and over again through three chapters of 1 Peter. And, and once again, he's encouraging these people who are struggling, living in an anti-Christian culture, to have hope. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what your future has in store. And that's exactly what he's going to do as we look at these first six verses of chapter 4. I want to go back to verse 18 of chapter 3 because this sets up what he's going to talk about in these six verses. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, we looked at these verses last week, and again, he's trying to get them to understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and I, what he has accomplished on our behalf through his death, through his suffering, through his crucifixion, but also through his resurrection, that Jesus Christ has accomplished some pretty incredible things that we need to put our hope in. We should not lose hope because he has accomplished much, much on our behalf, but he did it through suffering. And sometimes we forget that. Now, we're not that far away from Easter, right? And Easter is when we, particularly on Friday, is when we talk about the suffering of Christ, his crucifixion, and then we celebrate his resurrection on Sunday. We, we know that he suffered, but we would rather celebrate the fact that he rose again. But you can't have one without the other. And, and so Peter has really hammered this idea that Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf. And, and the one thing that's interesting in verse 18 of chapter 3 is that he refers to him as Christ. And that's important because that word in the Greek is Christos, and it's the kind of the transliteration of Messiah, uh, the Jewish word for Jesus. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. 
And here he is writing, Peter's writing to Gentile believers, and he's telling them that he is your Christ, he's your Christos, he's your Messiah. He's the one who died, he was the one who was promised, and he came and he died, and he rose again, and he is your hope. He's your Christ, he's the Son of God. And when you see this word Christ, it's interesting in the New Testament, it's, it's used in different ways. It's used Jesus Christ, and that's why some of us think that that's Jesus' last name. It's not. It's, it's a title, not a name. And sometimes it's Christ Jesus. And the reason it flips is depending on who's doing the writing and who he's writing to and the point he's trying to make, he's, they, they'll switch the name. So when Christ comes first, the emphasis is on his title. He's the Messiah, Jesus. And then when it's Jesus the Messiah, it, it has a different meaning. But it always means this. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's the Curios. He's our Master, our ultimate Lord. He's also the unblemished Lamb of God. That He came in human flesh, and He died on our behalf, but in order to do that, He had to be sinless. And so that's what's tied to this idea of him being the Christ, the Messiah. He's also the righteous one, completely righteous, always righteous, all throughout his life. That's why he's used it as an example of doing good, because everything he did in this life was good, righteous, holy, just, sinless, blameless. And so all of these things factor into when Peter uses that designation that he's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, you can't just leave that out. It's, it's essential that you understand all that that means. He's righteous. He's holy. He's just in every way. And, and this leads me to Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, where Paul talks about Jesus and what he did and how he came to earth and took on human flesh. Listen to what he says. Though he, Jesus, was God, he didn't think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Remember, Peter has talked about slaves, right? He's talked directly to slaves, real, literal slaves, telling them to submit to their masters. And here's Paul telling us that Jesus himself took on the form of a slave. And what did he do? He appeared in human form, and he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So Paul is basically saying the same thing in Philippians 2 that Peter is saying in 1 Peter, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, the Righteous One, the Lamb of God, came to earth and he died on our behalf. He took on human flesh and he died a criminal's death on a cross. He died. Every time Peter refers to his suffering, yes, it means he suffered throughout his life. He suffered abuse. He suffered rejection. He suffered ridicule. He was accused of being a blasphemer, a, a drunkard, illegitimate, all kinds of things. But his ultimate suffering was what happened on the cross, his suffering that led to his own death, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, we, again, looked at these last week, but, but it's interesting if you... Look at what Peter says, and last week I said that he almost talks in riddles. He, he calls them the righteous for the unrighteous. We can't lose sight of that. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Sinless One, 
died for me, and he died for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. And guess what? Had he not, we would still be what? Unrighteous rather than righteous. We would still be sinful rather than sinless in the eyes of God. He goes on and says, he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That process had to happen. It had to come in that order. He had to be put to death in the flesh, which he was, and made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. And I've split this verse this way because smack dab in the middle of these two statements is this one, that he might bring us to God. That's the goal. That was the objective. That's why he did it. That's why the righteous died for the unrighteous so that we might be brought to God, made right with God, um, reconciled to God. Because what was our problem prior to this? We were separated. We were enemies of God. See, Jesus Christ had to die, but he also had to be made alive. Had Jesus Christ just died and remained dead, we would still be hopeless. Remember, Paul talks about the fact that if there is no resurrection, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected, then we are the most to be pitied because we really don't have any hope. A dead Messiah is really not a Messiah. He's not a savior. He's a martyr. And you and I didn't need a martyr, we needed a Messiah. And so he died, but he was made alive. And that's why it's so important for us to understand when Peter follows that idea, the unrighteous for the righteous, he says, he's now gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We've talked a lot about submission, subjection, submitting to governmental authorities, submitting Submitting yourself, if you're a slave to your master, if you're a Christian wife to your unmarried, your uh, unsaved Christian or non-Christian husband, and yet, what does he tell us here? That he now, because he died and because he rose again, he's ascended on high, and he sits in this position of authority at the right hand of God. He's returned to his rightful place, and he has everything under subjection to him. Now stop and think for a minute. If you're sitting in that audience in Northern Asia Minor hearing this letter read to you and you get to this point of where Christ is, why would this be an encouragement? Why should it be an encouragement? Because he's telling these people that Jesus is back where he belongs, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and everyone and everything is in subjection to him, including your master your unsaved husband, the Roman government, uh, your employer who fired you because you came to faith in Christ, all your neighbors and friends who ostracize you, they are in subjection to him whether they realize it or not and whether you realize it or not. See, everything we see going on in the world today, every world power, every, you know, whether it's Vladimir Putin, it doesn't matter who they are, the president of China, it, it, they're all under subjection to who? Jesus Christ. May not look like it. They may not feel like it. Recognize it. But it's true. And that's why Peter makes such a major point of this. See, he says, all angels, all authorities, all powers. What's, what's he saying there? It's interesting that angelos are literal angels. They're heavenly beings. All those angels up in heaven, how many are there? I have no idea. 
But there's a lot of them. Myriad upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. Created beings who are created to glorify God. He says all authorities, that's exousia. It's, it's having to do with, with more earthly powers. I think it also includes the powers in the unseen realm, but I think the way he's listing these things is he's saying angels, powers in the heavens, powers on the earth, <coughs> all powers. All powers, everything. So heaven, earth, and anyone of any kind, anywhere, is under subjection to who? Jesus Christ. And that should be an encouragement to us. But here's what happens, because Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's somewhere in this place called heaven that we can't see. We sometimes forget that he's in power, and we feel like, it's all gone to heck in a handbasket. It's all falling apart all around us. And everybody and everything but him is in power. And I guarantee that's what these people felt like. As they looked around them and they, their lives were falling apart and they feel like they're under all this pressure and subjection and they feel like, where is Jesus? Where, where's he gone? And, and Peter says, I'll tell you where he's gone. He's sitting at the right hand of his father and he's in full power and authority. Don't panic. Don't forget that. You can trust him. Everything's in subjection to him. Why? Because he was put to death. Because he did what he came to do. He was obedient. He was faithful. He suffered. He did the will of his Father. Listen to this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I forget about this all the time. That Jesus Christ... The Son of God is interceding for me. Even when I don't pray, don't know what to pray, and when I do pray, pray for the wrong things, He's interceding for me and for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul writes? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is so pertinent for today, just as it was in Paul's day. It, it's, it applies to those people living in Northern Asia Minor, right? They're, they're living under persecution, tribulation, distress, nakedness. They're suffering. And he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Why? Because he's an authority. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Everything is un, in subjection to him. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer, right? It's that ultimately that suffering has a positive end to it. Remember, this is an eschatological letter. It's talking about the future. He's always talking about the future. Even Paul goes on and says, no, in all these things, persecution, suffering, distress, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's Paul doing virtually the same thing, saying that it doesn't matter if it's in heaven or on earth. It doesn't matter if it's an angel or it's a ruler. Nothing can separate us from what? The love of Christ. Nothing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of difficulty you face in your life, but that will not separate you from the love of Christ. It may feel like it. It may feel like you're not loved or that... Your world's falling apart all around you, but your Savior, your Messiah is in complete control. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
And that's why this is so important. He tells us we're conquerors. Why? Because he suffered and died. He accomplished something fantastic on our behalf. So he's, Paul's telling us we're loved. We're loved by God. And that love is inseparable. Nothing can separate you from that love. Here's the amazing thing. And I don't know who told me this, but I heard it years ago and it changed my life forever. That nothing can make God love me more and nothing can make God love me less. Now think about that. There's nothing I can do that will ever make God love me any more than he already has because he sent his son to die for me. And there's nothing I can do that will ever make him love me less. Nothing I will do today will make God fall out of love for me, with me. That's amazing. Because I fall out of love with people all the time. My kids, my grandkids. It takes one little bit of behavior that makes me fall out of love with them. Now, I don't fall out of love permanently, but for a period of time I do. And yet, that never happens between me and my Father, my Heavenly Father. It's inseparable. And it's all based on what Jesus Christ did, not what I do. That should bring us hope. That should bring us peace. That should bring us assurance that he's done it all. So here we are. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what he says. Since. Another one of those kind of connecting words, transitional words. Since, because of all that he's just said from verse 18 of chapter 3 to the verse 22. He says, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Because of what Jesus Christ did, coming to earth, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life, putting up with all kinds of persecution and abuse, and because he died, all because of that, we should react in a certain way. Again, what has he done? Well, Paul's hammered this home over and over again. I've been born again because of what Jesus Christ did. I couldn't be born again without him. I couldn't bring that on in my own flesh, but he did it for me. But because he did, I've been born again. I'm guaranteed an inheritance I don't deserve. I didn't earn it. I can't afford it. My soul has been saved. In other words, that if I die right now, my soul will go to be with him. My body will decay but my soul will live for eternity, and one day I'll get a new body. I can live holy because I am holy, right? We've talked about this. I, I am to live as who I am. I'm set apart, holy, sanctified, consecrated by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Live like it. I've been ransomed, bought out of uh, slavery to sin, and I'm part of a holy priesthood, and I'm a chosen race. This is what he's done for me, for you. And so, since that's true, since that's the reality, I'm to arm myself, you're to arm yourself with what? The same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What's that mean? Again, look at Philippians 2. You must have, have the same attitude or mind that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Have that attitude. What's the mind of Christ? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? To think like Christ, to process like Christ, 
Well, we see a list here, and it would be really easy to sit there and, and write down everything we see in Philippians 2 about the mind of Christ, that he was humble, that he was obedient, he was selfless, he was sacrificial, he exhibited unmerited love. You know, Graham preached this Sunday on love, and he used, of course, Jesus as an example of selfless, sacrificial, agape love. And so we see all these attributes here, but they're at outward expressions, right? These are things that we should do. We should be humble. We should obey. We should live selflessly and sacrificially. We should exhibit these characteristics because we are sons of God. But they're outward. The question I have is, where does the motivation come for these? How do we do it? How do we live like that? How do we live selflessly, sacrificially, humbly? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. Because we got to go back to Jesus on everything. He says this, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, why am I going there? If I'm going to have the mind of Christ, now I can look at the character of Christ, right? Humility, obedience, um, selflessness, love. But I got to start here. And where Jesus starts is, I exist to do the will of God. Well, guess what? The same thing is true of you and I. I exist to do the will of God. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to focus on all those outward characteristics, humility, love, sacrifice, and I'm going to forget why those are important and what's the motivation behind them. It's to do the will of God. Listen to this. Having the mind of Christ means this. We share his desire to see God's plan for the world accomplished. And I'm, I'm going to guarantee that most of us in the room have never thought about that. To have the mind of Christ is to share his desire to see that the will of God for the world gets accomplished. What does that mean? Well, what's his, what's his will for the world? To redeem it, to restore it to bring those who are lost into salvation, to make those who are enemies of God, friends of God, to reconcile a lost and dying world to him. That's the will of God. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. And we are to carry on his mission. Isn't that what he told the disciples? Hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to equip you, empower you to do my will. And you're going to do greater things than I did. And that was true of them, it's true of us. And we should carry on that mission to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why we exist. And the humility and the blamelessness and the sacrifice are a means to that end. But if you forget that end, all of that becomes kind of useless and superfluous. It, well, I'm glad you're selfless, I'm glad you're sacrificial, but why? To seek and to save those who are lost. You've got to have a right motivation or you're going to lose steam trying to live out those characteristics. And we've got to refuse to let anything to distract us from that mission. So what I love about Jesus is that he was fixed in his mindset. He never got off course. He never got distracted. He fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, the scriptures say, because he knew that's where it's going to take place. I've got to go to Jerusalem. And he wasn't going to let anything or anyone stand in his way including his disciples. You remember when Peter decides that I don't like this idea that you're going to go and die 
and I'm going to put a stop to it? Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I have no idea how Peter felt when he heard this, but I guarantee he shrunk to a miniature size. He wanted to run. He wanted to, to hide because he had been really ridiculed by, God, by Jesus for standing in the way of the will of God. Now, here's one thing you and I never want to do. Stand in the way of the will of God. But sadly, I think we do it a lot when we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to share with that person. I don't want to love in that way. I don't, you know, the whole message on Sunday was what? Love your enemy. And nobody in that room wants to go, yeah, love my enemy. Now, we may want to take that and go, well, okay, I want to choose who my enemy is. It's my neighbor who doesn't mow his yard as much as I would like him to. Well, okay, but Jesus is a lot more broad when he's talking about love your enemy. It's love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you, and that includes everybody that you can't stand politically, religiously, racially. Love your enemy. See, this is why Peter gets in trouble because he's not thinking about the will of God. He's thinking about the will of man, and that's what we have to be careful about. Because we are to have the same mind that Christ had. So as to live in the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We are to live as Christians on this planet with our hope and our minds focused on one thing and one thing only. What is the will of God? What would God have me do? Well, part of that is suffering. And this is the part we don't like, right? We don't want to suffer. Jesus suffered, though. Peter's driven that home for, what, three chapters now. Jesus suffered so that we might live. Suffering for the good life, for living the good life, the right life, the righteous life is what we're to do. Doing good as Jesus did. When? Right here, right now. I love what uh, Graham said in his message, message that, we won't have to love our enemies in heaven because we won't have any. We have to do it here where we have plenty of them, right? I won't have to love my enemies in heaven because they won't be there, but I do get the opportunity to do it now just as Jesus did in this life. That's why he says in chapter 2, God is pleased when conscious of his will, what will? Doing good, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Living righteously in an unrighteous world, we will suffer, and yet we'll be blessed for it. How will we be blessed? Maybe in this life, but most certainly in the life to come, right? We do know how the story ends. We win. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. God looks down and goes, Ken, I know it's hard. I, I know you'd like to react. I know you'd love to retaliate. I, I know you'd love to get even, but because... I love the fact that you are exhibiting Christ-likeness and righteousness in the midst of this, and I'm pleased. You're doing my will, and I'm pleased. See, that's what this is all about, suffering for doing good. God called you to do good, Peter says, even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered, to you, suffered for you. 
We are to do good, live righteously, live according to the will of God, love those who hate us, love those who persecute us, pray for their blessing, pray that God would work in their lives, that God would transform them just as we've been transformed. See, he's got power over everything, everyone and everything, and he can transform the worst of sinners into the greatest of saints. So we're to live differently. And I I love the fact that he says that you've ceased from sin. Has anybody in this room ceased from sin? If you have, I'd love to talk to you and get you some help Um, because you're deluded. But what's he saying here? He's not saying that you will no longer sin. That's not his point. He's trying to let these, these people know that you are exhibiting, when you do good righteousness in the face of persecution, you have ceased from sin in the sense that you've chosen a righteous path and you couldn't have done that before. You now have a capacity to live differently. That's really what he's saying. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, you now can choose not to sin. Paul Ochtemeyer says this, Christians who share the kind of suffering Christ underwent as a human being that is because of following God's will, not human desires, show thereby that their behavior is no longer ruled by such sinful desires. You know, I get guys who come to me periodically and they say, you know, man, I'm really, I'm really struggling. What are you struggling with? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm really convicted that, you know, I, I still struggle with lust. I'm like, okay, you're convicted by that, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm really convicted. It bothers me that I haven't conquered that. I said, the very fact that you struggle with it, that you are convicted by it, shows that the Holy Spirit is working in you. What would worry me is if it didn't bother you. See, the fact that we have conviction is is a sign that the Holy Spirit's there and he's working on us. And when we do say no to sin periodically, we should be encouraged that I I can do this. I was watching a TV show the other night and it, it got to a part that I knew I should not be watching this. And I turned it off. And I thought, that's a good thing. I had the capacity to turn it off. I didn't have to watch what I knew I shouldn't watch. And I listened to the Holy Spirit's prompting, and I obeyed. I obeyed. I don't do it all the time. I'm not always obedient. But when we do, it shows that I have ceased to sin. I don't have to sin all the time. I don't have to get angry at the least little thing. I don't have to lust all the time. I have a power within me that allows me to act differently. I'm no longer ruled by what sin. I don't have to give in to it. Listen to what Paul writes. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Do we still give in to it? Yes. Do we still commit sin? Sure. And we will until the day we die. But it I think each of us has seen a diminishment of sin's power in our lives over time. I sin far less than I used to and far less egregiously as I used to. I don't do a lot of the things I used to do 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I still sin. I still struggle with sin, but it's in a different form and it has far less control over me than it used to. When we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Paul tells us. So, as a result of that, here's where Peter's trying to encourage these people, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What's he telling them? 
when he says in the flesh, it's really, he's saying so as to live for the rest of the time in this life. See, you and I are in the flesh, right? I can see you, you can see me. Some of us are prettier than others. Some of us are larger than others. Some of us are older than others. Some of us have more hair than others. I can see you. We're living in the flesh. But he's, all he's saying is, in this life, you don't have to live the way you used to live because something's happened. You've been changed. You no longer have to live for human passions but for the will of God. That time has passed. That season has passed. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time before Christ, before you came to Christ, that old you is gone, and you had plenty of time to do all the stuff you used to want to do. You had plenty of time to live that life before you were changed. But you're different now. See, he's writing to people who used to live one way, now they're living a new way, and he goes, don't go back to that. Just because you're under pressure, just because you're under persecution, don't go back into your old way of life. Don't give in. Don't blend in. Keep standing out. Don't go back to doing what the Gentiles want to do. Don't live according to your human passions. And then he gives you this list, this egregious list of human passions, immorality, lust, feasting, drunkenness. Immorality is shamelessness, sexual excess. Man, it's all around us. It's amazing to me that you can't watch a TV show, and I don't care what kind of TV show, whether it's a comedy, a drama, sci-fi, history, they all have to weave in sex. And not in a good form, always in a bad form. Why? Because they know that that's what appeals to our culture. He talks about lust, the desire for what is forbidden. We are addicted to lusting. And so were these people living in Northern Asia Minor. He talks about feasting, excessive consumption, eating more than we should, drinking more than we should, overindulgence, drunkenness, same thing, drinking too much, never knowing when to say no, just one more, just one more. See, this is going on in that Greek culture in which they live, and they're being drawn back into it. I miss those days. I miss that behavior. And he's going, no, 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 don't go back to the wild parties. Drunken, destructive behavior is what that means in the Greek. Don't go back to the way you used to live. Don't give in to that. Don't go back to unlawful worship, idolatry. Don't go back to Zeus and all these other gods you used to worship. Worship the one true God. Don't cave in to your human passions. In other words, he's saying, don't go back to doing evil. Keep doing good. He, he, all throughout this letter, he's juxtaposing one over the other. Don't go back to your old way of life. Live in your new way of life. That was then. This is now. You're different. You're changed. Don't live by human passions. Live by the will of God. What would God have you do? Have the mind of Christ. What is the will of God? To redeem a fallen world. To reconcile lost people to a holy God. That's the past. Live in the now. And keep in mind that from wherever you were saved to wherever you'll be glorified, this is your new reality. Live in that. Don't live in the past. Don't look back. Look forward. Don't be a part of those who are dead, but those who are alive and living with new hope and a new lifestyle, a new empowerment. 
They're going to be judged in the flesh. You are going to live in the spirit. Part of what he's letting these people know, and this is difficult for us to even hear now, is that he's saying you may suffer to the point of death. You may die for your faith. Jesus did. Most of the apostles did. You could die for your faith, but guess what? You'll still live in the spirit. Your soul's been saved, so even if you die today, you'll get to spend eternity with him. They'll face judgment. You won't. That's the whole point of this passage. So stop doing what the Gentiles want to do. I, I think this is fascinating. It literally means don't do the will of the Gentiles. Peter and Paul both use the word Gentiles pretty interestingly. Peter's writing to Gentiles, right? These are predominantly Gentile people, but he refers to all those outside of their context. In other words, all non-believers become Gentiles to Peter and Paul because Gentiles, is, it's the word ethne, nations. And he's basically saying, if you're in Christ, you're now part of the body of Christ and you're part of the family of Abraham and everyone outside of that are considered Gentiles. It's really a word for the lost. Everybody outside of Christ are Gentiles, according to Peter and Paul. And don't live like them. Don't live like the lost. Don't live according to their will, their choice, their inclination, their passions. Don't give in to what the world is selling. And the world is always selling you and I something, right? And it's all a lie. Eat this, drink this, do this, and you'll have joy. You'll have fulfillment. You'll have everything you desire. Do it this way. And he says, no, no, no. Don't do the will of the Gentiles. Do the will of God. It all goes back to the will of God. What would God have you do to live like Christ, to love like Christ, to serve like Christ, but more importantly, to have that mentality that I want to see the will of God done on this planet? And I think it's interesting that one of the words that, Paul, that Peter uses is this word sensuality to describe the culture in which these people were living. And I can't think of a better word to describe our culture. Living by our senses, living by what we feel. It's epithemia, desire, craving, longing, desire for what is forbidden, lusting after anything and everything. If I could just have that, if I could just have that. We're always wanting something that is forbidden by God, and that's what the world sells us. Don't you want this? Don't you want that? Wouldn't you prefer her over her? And it's something we give into, sensuality, living according to our senses. It's what the culture is addicted to. Don't live according to the will of the culture. Listen to what Paul says. Their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. I love that phrase. Their God is their belly. They live off of their passions, their senses. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their minds are not set on what? Godly things, the will of God. He says to the Romans, such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Man, that is so easy to do, right? Even for us to fall back into serving my appetites. What do I want? What do I prefer? What makes me feel good? But no, no, no. I'm not to live according to the culture. I'm not live, to live according to the will of the Gentiles. I'm to live according to the will of God. And then he says, if you do, if you live like that, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be shocked. He says, they will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. 
I think it's fascinating. You may not, have, may not see this, but he uses that term, the flood of debauchery. What did he talk back at, in the end of chapter 3, verses 18 through 22? The flood, Noah, the ark. And here he bring, brings in, you know what? You and I are swimming in a flood of debauchery. We're surrounded by this. It's everywhere. But guess what? We've been placed in the ark of Jesus Christ, and we can survive it. We can float above it. We don't have to get down in it because we've been redeemed out of it. That's what he's saying. But yet, they're surprised. They're, they're literally shocked. They're dumbfounded. But it's even more powerful than that. They, they think it bizarre, strange, and in, and in reality, they think it's repulsive. When, when lost people see you living in a Christ-like way, they're repulsed by it. They're not just surprised, they hate it. That's why they persecute you. I love this from Paul Ochtemeyer. He says, the reaction of the non-believing contemporaries is not so much amazement as it is to be put off or offended by the strangeness of the Christian's conduct which in turn estranges the Christians from their contemporaries. They push you away. They ostracize you. They persecute you because they can't stand you. They can't stand your behavior because it's, it convicts them. And so here are these people living in Northern Asia Minor, Minor who've been radically changed by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's changed all of their relationships. It's made them aliens and strangers. And it's created separation from all those around them. It's separated them from the culture. The sad thing in our day is we've, we've almost blended into the culture. Christianity doesn't look much different than atheism to many people. Yet if we live like we're supposed to, we will create a sense of separation, but not total disengagement, right? We don't want to pull away from the culture. We, we don't want to run from it. We, we need to go into it, living out Christ's likeness so that people are convicted by it. And it may end up in our persecution. It may en end up in our further separation. But we know when we do it, we're pleasing to God. We're doing the will of God. We're living distinctively, differently, righteously, holy. See, this verse is a further description of the kind of exiles and aliens we're called to be in our society, not so much as a political threat as a social threat. Christians were seen as aloof, secretive, and socially indigestible. I love that last, last phrase. We are socially indigestible. We give them heartburn. Our very presence here gives them heartburn, holy heartburn. And if we took that attitude that we're to be holy heartburn to this society, Make them uncomfortable, not out of hatred, but because I want to show you what true life looks like through my life. I want to show you righteousness, the righteousness of Christ through my life, so that you might come to know him. But then he ends it with this. He says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What's he saying? Peter tends to end these, these little sections with almost riddle-sounding statements that are a little bit confusing, but all he's really saying is that if we do the will of God and live as Christ did, and if we 
have the same mind that Christ had, and we want to see the will of God performed through our lives in this world, it will have an effect. See, we're, we're, we're dead to sin, but we're alive to Christ. We don't have to give in to sin anymore, but we can live differently. What's he really telling these people in these verses that seem so confusing? Who are those who are going to give an account? When will the living and the dead be judged? What does it mean to be judged in the flesh? And what does it mean to live in the Spirit? See, all of this is crammed into those last couple of verses. What's he trying to tell us? There is a judgment. And he's telling these these Christian believers that as bad as things are, you will escape this judgment. You don't have to worry about this judgment. He's talking about the final judgment. And this is something you and I don't think a whole lot about because it's not really comfortable. It's a little bit scary to think about judgment. But every unbeliever who lives on this planet right now or who has ever lived will face judgment. Vladimir Putin will face judgment. Donald Trump will face judgment. Joe Biden will face judgment. Pick your politician, pick your party, pick anybody in this planet who lives right now and they all will face judgment unless they're in Christ. And if they are in Christ, they won't. That's what he's trying to tell them. You may think it's bad, but you're not going to be at the great white throne judgment. Look at this passage. This is Revelation chapter 20. I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Notice the inference twice, what they had done, their behavior while living on this earth. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's going on here? Here's John being given a vision of the end, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And he sees this book of life, and it has names written in it. And guess whose names are written in the book of life? Yours. Mine. Everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their names are written in the book of life. Guess whose names are not written in the book of life? All those standing before that throne. All those who have ever lived over time, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ will stand before him and be judged for all that they've done in life. See, this is the goal of the gospel, is to get your name written in that book. And if you've accepted the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your name is written in that book. That's why he says in verse 6, this is why the gospel is preached. What's the this? To not be judged at the end. See, if you're in Christ, you will not be judged because your name's already written in the book of life. That's why the gospel was preached, so that you might escape judgment, so that you might live with him. And that was meant to be good news to those people living in Asia Minor. You will not face judgment. Yes, you're facing persecution, but when it all ends, you will not be at that throne. You will not go through that judgment because your names are in the book of life and you will have a secure future, an eternal future, with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and never face judgment. 
See, as we go through what we're going through in this life, we should remember that. We should dwell on it. We should put our hope in it. That's a reality. And it's a hard reality to remember when we face all that we're facing. But those who have died will live in the Spirit. If they died in the midst of their persecution, they'll live in the Spirit. And guess what? They're all dead. They all died. And those who are in Christ are with Him right now. And they will not ever face judgment. And the same thing is true of you and I. We will not face judgment, but we will live in the Spirit. John writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, hopes in that reality, purifies himself as He is pure. We live with the mind of Christ. We live to do the will of God. So here's your question. Why should knowing that those who persecute and malign us for our faith will one day be judged for their actions bring us encouragement in this life? It's kind of a strange question, isn't it? That I should find hope in the suffering of others? But see, he's talking to people who are being persecuted, who are being ridiculed, who are being ostracized, people who are being even put to death for their faith. Why should knowing that one day all those will be judged why should that bring me encouragement? Why should that bring you encouragement? Where do you see the battle between the passions of man and the will of God taking place in your life? How would thinking like Christ help? Where do you see yourself giving in to those passions, the, the will of the Gentiles, rather than to the will of God? And why would having the mind of Christ help with that? And finally, read Romans 8, 12 through 14. How do these verses help explain that we have ceased from sin? We no longer have to sin. We can say no, and we can do good, live righteously, maybe suffer for it, but know that in doing so, we're pleasing to God, and we have an inheritance waiting for us. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter, his faithfulness to pen these words so many years ago, and thank you for the Holy Spirit who prompted him to do so, so that these words still apply thousands of years later for my life and the life of every man in this room. May we live with the mind of Christ and a heart for the will of God, to do the will of God for as long as you give us life on this planet. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.